3: help for them to get on in our head, but they're probably not the
2: questions that you want answered, so. Yeah, writing them down for us is important because of our chemo brain.
0: Let's get started.
1: Welcome to The Bloodline with LLS. I'm Alicia.
2: And I'm Lizette. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. On today's episode, we
1: will be chatting with Ethan, a young adult, multiple myeloma survivor, who will be sharing his story with us. And for those of you who don't know much about myeloma, myeloma is a type
2: of cancer that begins in the bone marrow, and it's really the plasma cells. And doctors really don't know why some people get myeloma and some people don't. At this point, there's no way to prevent it. Some patients actually find out at a regular medical checkup with either blood or urine tests. And more often than not, people do have symptoms when they're diagnosed. Usually it includes bone pain, bone fractures with no known cause, as well as infections. And I think one of the things is that most people with myeloma are usually diagnosed at an older age. So usually 50 or over. And Ethan, I know that you're not 50 or over. No, no. (laughs) And I know that you were diagnosed quite young. I believe 22?
3: That's right, 22.
2: Yeah, so that's something that we don't see a lot of with myeloma. Alicia and I attended a conference in Washington DC for the National Comprehensive Cancer Network and it was a survivorship conference and the speaker was a survivor and he was diagnosed with myeloma at age 25. I think he's 25 years older than that at this point but you know both of you have been diagnosed in your 20s and that's something really that we haven't seen. How did your doctor find it? Because usually if somebody is in their 20s, doctors are not looking for myeloma.
3: No, yeah, it was quite a surprise to all of us. Uh, I had just come back from studying abroad in Spain where I was running quite frequently because I was training for the Madrid Marathon. This was April twenty eighth, 2013 and came back a few weeks later and found that I just had this persistent hip pain and i had always played sports and just thought that it was going to be a some type of tendon tear or whatnot, and it just got so bad that it, I couldn't put any weight on it. And upon further review, I went into my doctor's and they took an X-ray on July third. They came back and just a couple hours later, he said you should go down to Boston. This looks like something a little bit more serious than than I've than I've seen. And upon that, I went down to Boston to Brigham and Women's where I then met my doctors and I had some tests done from there and they weren't expecting it to be a solitary plasma cytoma. But then after a biopsy, they found out that that was indeed the case that this was a plasma cytoma. And I got the call a couple of weeks later uh, from my doctor down in Brigham a woman's where he said, you have a solitary plasma cytoma. It's about a small fist size and, in your hip, which is the, due to the persistent pain. We didn't find any other plasma cytomas, so it's just that. For now, we'll just do radiation, do a hip surgery to stabilize it, stabilize your hip from breaking. However, then after that, I went in for further, te- further testing at Dana-Farber, where after a PET scan, it was revealed that I had a smaller lesion on my skull, and thus it presented as multiple myeloma. So that was quite a shock all the way around something i never even heard of. And upon the couple of weeks going from plasma cytoma to multiple myeloma, I saw statistics and people were saying, oh, well, good you don't have it. It's not my, multiple myeloma. And then when I got that call that it was multiple myeloma, it just, my life just, it was one of those moments where everything stopped. I, I felt numb. It was a shock. I was confused. And the hardest part about it is that there wasn't Statistics, there wasn't other people that I could relate to to try and seek out and to hear Dana Farber say you're going to be a trailblazer in the MM community was something that really kind of resonated with me. I knew that I was in the best hands possible at Dana Farber and that we had a really good treatment plan uh, in order to eradicate both the plasma cytoma and multiple myeloma.
2: Sure. And the solitary plasma cytoma just for people who, who aren't aware is Uh, basically that it's found in one area. And then multiple myeloma is that it's found in more areas, um, and that's why it's multiple myeloma. And most people who are diagnosed are actually diagnosed with multiple myeloma because they do find it in different areas. But there are some people that do just get the diagnosis for the solitary uh, plasma cytoma. So how did you feel when they told you that it was multiple myeloma?
3: When they told me that it was multiple myeloma, everything else that – my 22 years of life had had moved up to everything froze. Everything became obsolete. I've heard the term AD and BC after diagnosis and before cancer. And it's really hard to be able to relate back to who I was before the age of 22 because in that moment, just everything seemed to change. Everything was put into perspective. All the little things that I worried about like a week, just a week earlier about asking a girl a date or this or that. Now it just became <laughs> I have cancer. And that just a good analogy that I would say that I felt when I was told that my Lomas is, is as if like a tornado had come through and just ripped up the entire foundation in which I had known. But in the same time, I also knew that this was going to be a second chance and a do-over in a way that I was now going to be able to have the silver lining to that to really prioritize who I was and what I wanted this to become. And I didn't know what that meant in the moment. It was all just very, it was a blur, it was confusing, and I was surrounded by incredible people, friends and family, and my my medical community in and around the seacoast of New Hampshire. They really helped me through those difficult moments of what was at first just shock and then denial that I was normal three weeks ago, and now I have multiple myeloma, and the hardest part about that was the uncertainty of what that all meant. What that meant for my future, I was planning on going back to school, and fortunately I was able to do so with the direction of my doctors. So to be able to keep some semblance of normalcy in all this was, was really important.
1: And you were told that you would be a trailblazer, but also being a part of a generation that looks to find information wherever they can. What were your immediate steps to learn about your new diagnosis?
3: I think the most important resources that I was able to receive um, was – The few and far between other young adults who have had multiple myeloma in the past at at such an early age um, because they didn't really know what to expect. There isn't much data on mid-20s and what that means for survivalship. You see the statistics, 65 years old and the age expectancy, three or four years. What I really appreciated that my doctors told me was that not to worry about those statistics, like that's not you, you're an outlier and all this, and just almost ignore what you see online because it's bookable to you, um, and instead, even though it is deemed incurable, the fact that we were able to see it at such an early onset and have such a strong treatment plan in place is really what should be focused on. and And I'm really glad that that was the case because there's so much in with myeloma and in cancer in general that you can't control. Where your mind can take over to is all the what ifs. I had a premonition when I first heard the word that this could be cancer. I just had a feeling that. It was going to be, even though no one expected it to be. And I think also too, I have a premonition that it's my myeloma won't come back. And I think a lot of that has to do with the way in which I went about learning this and the resources that I've used since then to further educate myself.
1: Right. Where did you find your support system, or how did you? What did you do? Who did you surround yourself with to keep your spirits high during this time?
3: First and foremost, it was my family. I have a really strong family, and they really pulled through, and they were the ones that helped me up in so many different ways. And on top of that, I found that friends, people who I wouldn't even expect came into my life. And the thing about having cancer, what I've realized is that even though it is cancer and it seems like the most extreme, which in in my case of 22 years it, it was, there's so many other people who are also experiencing other types of pain and who have relatives or friends and family, other life experiences. They felt pain, and it was those types of people that tried to relate to me in that way that um, opens themselves up about pain and suffering that they felt or someone they know. And because this is such a vulnerable time, to be able to hear those stories from other people was something that really gave me a lot of strength in knowing that even though I felt alone, I knew that I wasn't. And my family made sure of that. They did everything they could. They would move heaven and earth to make sure that I was safe and comfortable and trying to live as normal of a life as possible. So I feel very grateful and fortunate, too, as the people that came into my life. And I think one of the stories to that, too, is that I think that they came into my life because I – let people in. Um, I think that in a traumatic incident, you can either retract or open up. And I, I think maybe just because of my personality, I began to write. I wrote a lot. Um, that's one thing that I, I see on the horizon is, is writing more. But I started a Carrying blog. And the attention that that received and the people that started following and writing comments, that was my therapy to be able to write down on paper this is what I'm experiencing. This is what it's like, and then to have so many people respond in such a positive manner, saying that like, you got this, like, you're so strong, and and we're thinking of you. It was those types of things that I would look at, I would look at, and look back at each and every day to remind myself that there's people out there who are rooting for me, and and those are the people that kept me going through even the most difficult of times.
2: You mentioned people who also were diagnosed with myeloma at an early age. Were you able to connect with other people?
3: I've been able to connect with a couple, and it took a little bit of time, about three or four months into my journey with cancer, with myeloma, that I found another recent myeloma survivor who was a little bit older than I, but she was diagnosed at the same time, at 22, 23 years. And so as much attention as I was receiving for from on a medical standpoint to as what my Loma was and what it was going to mean healing her now at the, at the time, seven, eight years removed from it um, was really, really beneficial for me in an overall sense to understand what, what it was like for her and to have a better understanding of what it is that I can expect in, in moving forward. And I also think that a I found a mentor in someone who was four or five years older than me that also suffered a rare cancer who actually used to be my baseball coach. And I think that's really important for a cancer survivor to be able to have one or two people that they can rely on and just be able to talk openly, express what they're going through, what things are like, and be able to bounce ideas off of because cancer talk can be heavy. And I learned that the hard way that I couldn't just Openly share my deepest, innermost, uh, troubles, trials and tribulations of what I was going through because it's no one's fault. It's just, it's a lot. It's a lot to try and comprehend for someone, especially as a young adult. So to know people that have gone through that before, that's where I'd be able to really kind of get to the deepest, the deeper root of issues that were going on.
1: And I think it's so important that you highlighted the two ways that people most likely respond by retracting or opening up, because, I mean, we even see that here. I mean, a cancer diagnosis, like you said, is very heavy, and you don't know how to go about approaching that topic or even how to have a conversation with friends. On one of our episodes, a young adult also said that he didn't tell anyone. The only person that knew about his diagnosis was his girlfriend because he, he didn't know how to express himself in this new way, you know, so it was very difficult for him. And here at the LLS, that's why we have, resources that allow people to come together on the platform and share what it is that they're going through so that they don't have to feel like they're alone or they can have a question and know that somebody who may be in that same situation can answer it or can get hope from knowing that somebody else is going through something similar to them what advice would you have for a friend or family member when it comes to offering
3: support i would say the first piece of advice is to be patient uh, it's a re- it's a really tricky and challenging time where some moments you want to pound your chest and be like, oh, like, I'm gonna be able to do anything from now, from here on out, because at times that's how I feel. And then there's other times where it's like, who am I? What's going on here? And I think the most important piece of advice would be to try and just, not necessarily try and understand all of it, but just understand that there's gonna- we're gonna have our moments moments where we feel really weak, really tired, really sad, and then there's going to be other moments where it dawns on us that this is real, that this is a real thing, and there's a lot of positive things that are coming out of this. It's hard to be able to try and understand who you are and what your identity is. I think that's a big piece to it, too. My identity for for years there, for two or three years, it just wavered. I didn't know who I was, what I was, and all I saw myself in any type of situation was a cancer patient. That's how I thought everyone viewed me. And that's how I myself viewed myself. When in reality, there's so much more to to it. But in those years and even after therapy and after treatments, there's a lingering emotional effect that takes time to be able to recover from. And even though that the physical scars may be finishing, maybe we're done with our treatment or it look like we're getting back to a semblance of normalcy, we're, that's, that's really when the battle really kicks in because during my chemo and my stentile transplant, I felt that I was so in it that the adrenaline kind of took me through, but it was afterwards that the real, the, the real grit and the real rawness of it all, um, began to show its face. And that's when the healing process really started for me. You talked about, you hear a lot about the grieving stages and I was in the grieving stage of shock and denial for almost a year, and that was during treatment, but it was the two or three years afterwards of going through the depression and then the acceptance that that's an invisible scar that took a while to be able to heal from, but it was the patience of my family and my best friends that knew that even though they couldn't see what I was going through anymore, they could understand that it's going to take a little bit more time. And I'd say also to little kind gestures, like letting some, like receiving texts or notes, I have a bag filled of all of the handwritten notes and cards I receive. And on days that I'm not feeling either my best or I just want to relive it and, and realize how strong I am, I go back through those. And in certain situations, I re- can recall every little act of kindness that someone or somebody did for either me or my family. And that goes, that went a really long way and whether they realize it now or not, that was kind of the backbone to my getting through cancer was knowing that I could rely on these people and that their acts of kindness and they helped me up when I didn't feel as strong.
2: We've been hearing from a lot of patients and not just young adults, but young adults are the ones that have been really letting us know that they came to the reality after they stopped treatment. And one of the professionals that we spoke to said that it's because everybody's like on autopilot when they're getting treatment. You know, you're fighting that war, you're in that battle and you just keep pushing forward. Mm-hmm. But then when the doctor says, okay, so you're, you're in remission now and we're not going to, you know, give you all these medications and you're not going to see me as often. And that's when they started feeling like, oh, my gosh, I just went through this. Um, and getting that realization that you're talking about. And people say that that's, that's really when you need a lot of that support. And here at LS, we want to provide support all throughout somebody's journey. And I don't know if you have any ideas of how we can really meet people at that point. Because you're right. You start realizing exactly what just happened.
3: Yeah, I think one way of understanding that is because going back to before cancer or after diagnosis, in that time where you're going through treatment, it's, it isn't really you. Like you're just being carried in the momentum of the waves of one treatment to the next. But what I wish I had known a little bit more before cancer or to better understand how I coped with cancer is understanding what some of my tendencies were in highly anxious or Situations before cancer. And what I mean by that is how do you, how does one in a relative situation cope with a type of stressor in their life? And with finishing treatment, it wasn't really over. I would be going in for maintenance chemo. And that was really hard for me to accept that why, why was this the case for, for me? Why, why did I have to keep on? I thought I was done with this. Um, but somewhere along the way, I realized that this could be also be used as my secret weapon in a way. And it puts in perspective that this is kind of what I am, who I am, but there's so much more, more to me. And I think that that, that's really helped in coming to grips with all of this. Um, because you're right. In the midst of it all, it's, it's a flash. It goes by within a second. And then you're trying to pick up the pieces afterwards and understanding what what just happened and how is this going to affect my life moving forward. I think what helped me the most, one of the things that helped me a lot during this time, now looking back on um, after the whole treatments ended because that's as that's, that's the most confusing piece, is having some con- a concrete idea or vision of where you see this taking you. And what I mean by that is when I was in the stem cell transplant, I don't remember much from it. I do remember one afternoon, um, creating a book uh, and cutting out pictures from magazines of lifestyle and nice homes or family and putting that all together and thinking that's, this is how I want my life, life to be. And I, I, it took me a while to revisit that. And then fast forward a couple of years after I received a total hip replacement in 2016, I was laying in bed rest. I felt really hopeful that this was the start of something new. And I wrote down all the things I wanted to accomplish, that I wanted to move out in a year and be on my own insurance. I wanted to work in medical device sales. I wanted to do this. I wanted to do that. I started to really be able to feel steps of progression because progression, I think, was the biggest, was a huge contributing factor to me getting better. And if I had known uh, a couple of years earlier that I didn't need to hit a home run. But if I could just get up on my feet and be able to put one foot in front of the next and progress, then that would be that's that's ultimately led me to where I am now and building off that foundation.
1: Wow. You mentioned you had a stem cell transplant when you heard that you would be undergoing that. What were your thoughts about that?
3: Honestly, I was almost excited for it. It was the last piece of the chemo process. I'd gone through radiation. uh, I got hip surgery, stabilized my hip, then nine months of chemo. And so that was the last piece to it was a stem cell transplant in the summer of 2014, um, a year after the diagnosis. And even though I was in remission, uh, they felt that this would be the best opportunity to really – get me into the deepest state of remission. And so I was excited for it. I was like, okay, so I'm going to have two or three weeks in quarantine and then I'm going to be able to put all this behind me. I think that I had no idea to the extent that that was going to affect me going through a stem cell transplant, um, and getting bone marrow biopsies and taking drugs that will push all your stem cells out of your bone marrow. And then I was in the stem cell transplant. Well, before I get to there, I, I, I watched some videos. I was given some nice educational videos, both from social worker and from my team of doctors, uh, about what to expect. I was in isolation for those three weeks, um, and it was just very difficult to. I remember the only th- I make reference to my time there because it was the World Cup, so um, that was the one thing that was something that was that was that was fun. That was nice, but it was hard to just concentrate on much during that. And then the scariest piece was a week after leaving the stem cell transplant, I then caught pneumonia back at home and was rushed back down to Brigham and women's. And that was really, I remember describing it to a specific psychologist therapist there asking how I felt. And I said how I felt. And it was in that one moment that I don't know, when the last time I actually cried was because it just was such a quick everything was so fast and moving and I don't think I really had time to come to grips with what this all meant. But facing your own mortality at such a young age and I remember just crying. I remember saying it feels like a black pit of despair. I didn't know how I was going to be able to come back from this, uh, both physically and psychologically. It just felt like way too much to handle. And that's where after being released from the stem cell transplant. Um I remember my doctor just saying you have to get your sea legs back. It goes back to my support system with my mom and my family is you know, she would get me out of the house and we'd go for a walk on the beach and as as painful as that was for those 3 4 months following the transplant, now looking back on it that was probably what what saved me in so many different ways was getting back out there and just being patient. I wasn't patient. I wanted everything to happen right away. I thought, okay, I'm in remission. Like I should feel better now, but it's the mental and emotional piece to coming to grips with, with everything that has just transpired took some time and I didn't, I couldn't see it in it and, but I have a much better perspective on it now is that all those painful moments, if I were to have gone through it again, would just embrace it a little bit more, like understand that it's okay to feel this way that someone's going through, you're going through a lot. I was going through a lot and not to be so hard on myself. It was, that was a difficult moment being in that in the stem cell transplant room. But that's also, as they refer to it, my second birthday, June 23rd, 2014 is kind of a day that I celebrate now. Um, just as much as my own birthday, I have that second chance that do over and it's very empowering. Now looking back on all of those difficult moments and seeing that I'm seeing where I am today. Um, And I think that's one of the huge silver lines to either cancer or any other painful experience that someone goes through is that it won't make sense right now, but one day it will. Are you
1: still in? (laughs) I know, right? I'm like sitting. I'm just like, uh, I'm inspired. I am inspired. I know. We're both
2: like, Wow. (laughs)
1: it's not the silence isn't because we have nothing to say the silence is because that we're just in awe of your story and how incredible it is and how how hopeful it is
2: yeah and how positive you are and your coping mechanisms how refined they are and how almost double your age probably but how your coping mechanisms are so much better than mine you know that's all i could say i could say wow you know and i'm glad that you're sharing your story because i think People need to hear it and people need to know that there's something after that hard time that they're feeling. Are you still in remission from, from the transplant?
3: I am, yeah. I'm, I'm every three months I go back in for blood work and each time they say counts look incredible. They look great. And so I'm on maintenance chemo, which is chemo each week. And that's also a, a piece to it too is, um, I'm able to be in a job that's very, very demanding and, um, I feel great. I mean, it's, um, it's, it's a security blanket too, in a way, um, taking this oral form of chemo, um, as I've seen very good results and feel really good overall, besides for a little cold I have right now. But other than that, everything, <laughs> everything is great. Things are shaping up right now the way I don't even think I would be able to imagine at 26 before all this started. It really, it's a humbling experience. I don't get too high. I don't get too low. I see things now a lot differently. I feel very fortunate to be able to open myself up and share with people stories about just, just the other day I was speaking with uh, a young, a young guy. He's 22 and he had, he had been diagnosed with testicular cancer a couple of years back. And, and I could see in talking to him that where he was in his, in his grieving process, comparing himself, still angry and telling him about what I went through and, saying that's it's it's okay, it's gonna take some time and then hearing him be like, Wow, wow, yeah, that's that's I never thought of it that way. I I know that I have a story to tell and, and I want to be able to tell it because I in hopes that it'll be able to help somebody either with or without cancer down the road.
1: Absolutely. When the doctor looks at you and they say those words, you know, it may be this or it may be that and the end result ends up being confirmed in your case that it was multiple myeloma. It's that shock of, like you said, three weeks ago, I was worrying about whom I'm going to ask out on a date. And now I'm in this new stage in my life that I had no idea that I would be in. And it's, it's, it's meeting people where they, where they are. What resources do you wish were available at the time of diagnosis?
3: Mm, that's a good question. I was able to find some young adult resources in the time of diagnosis that I found helpful as far as forums and different blog posts. I think one thing that would would have helped me is to have more of a sort of like a, a nucleus of areas where there are young adults who've gone through cancer and having a more awareness to his different uh, resources that are available that I would have been able to rely on. And I think my doctors did an incredible job informing me on on the state of what my disease was like, but I think that it would have been helpful too to have someone at the hospital have in plan, like, okay, this is what other cancer patients have used as a resource to find support and find strength. And Dana-Farber, they have a great resource in that. I also know that in some places they probably, those resources probably aren't as available. So I think that just having a an area where there is a known, there's kind of a known helpline of, different areas of cancer that people have gone through that is something that you can look into and be able to call up somebody or talk to somebody because I think with cancers, it's, it's, it can be hit or miss with as far as some people they don't want to talk about it again than other people's do. And I think just having, you know, more just a more background to is what other people did both clinically and in a quality-of-life type of way once they're diagnosed.
2: Sure. Are you one of our First Connection volunteers? We have a program where um, patients will talk to someone that's newly diagnosed.
3: Yes, I remember. Yes, I I was on that. (laughs) I was on
2: that. You need to be if you're not. Yeah, definitely, Definitely. because we have a lot of young adults. and. It's really important for young adults throughout all of our podcasts that we've had with young adults, throughout all of our um, programming, that um, people really want to reach out to each other. And it's so much different talking to another young adult that's been going through something similar than to your caregivers mm-hmm. um, or your family and just trying to, you know, figure out how to talk to your family and we've had a lot of young adults that are saying that, you know, once they stopped treatment, their family was still very overprotective and, and just trying to see how to, um, you know, deal with that. And we also have online chats. I don't know. We have a young adult online chat. You probably would be the first myeloma young adult patient that we've had on the chat.
1: But we um, have our living with myeloma chat too. We do. We do. <laughs>
2: So our Living with Myeloma chat also, you could be part of both chats. And basically they're online, so it's it's easy for patients. And it really is kind of that support system that a lot of our patients need. We even have a caregiver chat that caregivers said that, you know, we need our own chat because we have specific needs because they were getting on the chats with their loved one and weren't saying certain
3: things. Yeah, that's, I, I think that's really important for caregivers because it's, sometimes I felt it weighed a lot on me seeing what my family must have been going through and knowing that they would switch places with me in a heartbeat and that there's only so much that they can do and how hard that must be to see your kid or significant other go through what they're going through. I, I think that's really important and support systems, I heard it from the onset of diagnosis it's so critical. And I would I would love to be a part of that chat group. I got in touch with First Ascents. That was a great program. Outliving it for young adults, whitewater kayaking. So that was really yeah. cool. That was a really cool experience.
2: Yeah, it- we have a staff member that did that. She said it was great. It was a great oh, experience. Really? Yeah. And I was like, isn't that a little bit dangerous? But <laughs> i I'm, I'm, I'm not active yeah. like you are running marathons, so I don't know.
3: <laughs> it was. It, it fell a little out of my comfort zone, too. But <laughs> enough, it was very metaphorical. You don't really know what's around the bends. And it was empowering to get back out there and try and take back some control.
1: You mentioned earlier um, your Caring Bridge blog that you created. Do you want to tell the audience more about that and how they can access that?
3: Yes, yeah, so it's caringbridge.com org and the site is Ethan Hawes, H A W E S and it goes through my journey of myeloma during that first year. There's probably about twenty or so blogs in which I wrote about different feelings that I was going through and and I think what that really that was a huge thing for me and other people because. It's hard to ask a certain, it's hard to ask someone with cancer how they're doing. But then when you have somebody that is open to at least filling you in and letting somebody, letting an audience know this is what's going on right now, it gives people some relief knowing that they don't need to necessarily walk around eggshells. And that was my big thing is I never wanted people to feel uncomfortable or awkward with my situation because it can be, it can be awkward and uncomfortable. I thought that to be really helpful and it, what it really does is just shows the support that other people have in one's own experience. And I go through what it felt like physically and emotionally during my cancer experience. I think that getting those replies and getting such strong feedback is something that helped me feel like I had some of that strength, like I had some of that willpower to keep on going even in the most most difficult of days. and think that, that that can be a really helpful resource to someone.
1: Absolutely. At one point, you took out a magazine and you started cutting out or ripping out things that you wanted to kind of see for yourself in the future. With everything that has happened, what's next for you? If you had another magazine in front of you, what would be the first thing that you cut out?
3: I would say the first thing that comes to mind is speaking in front of large audiences. That's the thing that I see myself doing now and using my story because it just, it keeps on growing and being inside a OR room for work and seeing total joint replacements. It's another surreal moment. That's I was that patient once. And I think that I have a lot of experiences in just these 26 years and going back to the do over. I I'm very grateful for everything that I've gone through. And I think it would be a shame to not reveal all that in the things that I've learned and, where I see that map taking me is to a point of helping others because my mindset now is there are so many people, so many people that helped me and what I, what I prioritize now is trying to give it back and pay it forward because I'll never be able to say thank you enough to the amount of people that came to my life and came to my aid. And help me to get to the point I am now. And if, if I ever need anything down the road, they'll be there too. I want to be able to make a difference and to show people that, wow, if, if this person can go through everything that they went through and with this awful diagnosis, cancer or not, that it would give somebody some, somewhere some hope that they too can, can overcome obstacles, even in the most dire of situations because things Things do get better. My mom would always tell tell me, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. And I think that was honestly, out of all the quotes and magazine inspiration things that I would read, that was one of the most powerful things for me because I didn't know if I'd be okay. I was scared. I was. That was what would scare me most was, am I going to be okay? Because there were many days I didn't. Hearing her say, you're going to be okay, have that kind of glimmer of hope that, that it will be. And there's so many people... Um, that are experiencing such difficulties in one way or another, where they have that same thought, that same uncertainty: Are things going to work out? And weirdly enough, is uh, they do. What I found is, if if I just stick to what I know and have an idea of where I want to go, that as long as I'm progressing, then it will be okay. Because how I felt just three weeks after my total hip replacement and beginning to walk again without. Pain isn't a whole lot different than, than where I am now. It's just a different type of progression. So I think that's, that's a big takeaway that, that I like to keep in mind is that what makes me feel good about myself is, um, what have I done today? What have I done with my family, with my friends, my job for others? Like I, I, I try and have the most well balanced of, of life because I know that that's worked for me these last nine months to a year and I hope to be able to continue.
2: That seems like your cancer journey really shaped who you are today, not just who you are, but even your career path. Do you think that you would have the same career path that you have now?
3: No, not at all. I don't think I even really knew about this job. About two or three years ago, towards the end of college, 2015, and I had heard about this job, about what a medical device rep is. And for me, that... Intrigued me mightily. That was part of the going into my senior year. I'm like, what am I going to do? I I think that this, it it gave me a purpose. It gave me something to get up for. And when I heard that there was a specific job opening after my total hip replacement, it invigorated me and gave me something to work for. And I'm very fortunate and very grateful to be working uh, with the company I am now and with the doctors I, I, and with and I think part of that is that I have sort of a, a definitely an immense comfort in and around hospitals and anything medical related. So I it feels good to be able to have an indirect impact on a patient um, at at 26. Uh, so that's where I get a lot of joy out of, out of doing what I do and don't think that I'd be in this position if it weren't for cancer.
1: Ethan, it's so inspiring to hear how you've managed to use your diagnosis to motivate you in ways that will help others going through similar situations or experiencing the same type of emotions. As we near the end of this episode, what is one important thing you want to leave with our listeners?
3: Just kind of coming full circle with it, I would just I would say that patience patience was a big was a big thing for me. Um, just being patient with myself, with my body with the treatment that I was going through and because some days I felt awful and then other days I felt things are okay, but then I would have setbacks. I would have, I would have trips and there'd be days where I would just spend a whole weekend just lying on the couch. And I, and I didn't understand why I had such, why I couldn't get up off the couch and, and do what everyone else was doing and living a normal life. And, I think it's I think it's very hard not to compare and contrast if you're going through cancer um, as a cancer patient because you see normalcy all around you but you yourself don't necessarily feel that way and I wanted that to happen right away well, okay I'm done with treatment why is my hip better let's just get back to it let's let's put this behind and I don't want to be I don't want to put this behind me it's it's part of my story part of my journey and I want to be able to to make something of it it from here. And being patient, that all works out.
2: Thank
1: you. We really
3: appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for sharing your story today and letting others know that they are not alone and that there is indeed a life after diagnosis. We are thrilled to hear how well you're doing and we hope for your continued success. For anyone listening who would like more information about myeloma-specific materials or other support materials, as well as Ethan's blog,